0: I'm Martha. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Because a loving God was with me on the night of December the 31st, 1973, and stayed that night with me, and led me to you people, and since that time it's only worked through you, I've not had a drink since that day, and for this time sober with you, I'm as grateful as I'm capable of being. Uh, I hate to complain the minute I get up here. But but this is going to be hard. This is going to be like talking to an oil painting. Can we have the lights up so I can see y'all too? I really need to be able to see y'all. If y'all going to look at me, by God, I'm going to look at you. Uh, I really appreciate being invited here. I've only been to uh, Nashville one other time. And it was about, um, well, about 30 years ago, and I was drinking at the time. (laughs) I'm sorry I never mentioned it. (laughs) Sheesh. But I had, um, I had had some surgery on my wrist right before I left Houston, and I was drinking and taking pills, and, uh, I saw lots of things that nobody else saw, so I don't remember a zip about Nashville. But I do, uh, I do thank the committee for uh, inviting me. I love to be invited to do things in Alcoholics Anonymous. In case I don't get around to saying it, I love this way of life, and I love being sober. I really do. Um yeah. <laughs> Maybe some of the other speakers this weekend won't uh, mention that they're nervous, because maybe they're not. I am. Um, Anytime I'm going to be honest for a whole hour at a time, by God, it makes me nervous. (laughs)
1: Because
0: generally I take my honesty in smaller doses than that. Anyhow, it gets better after I uh, get sober. I start my story the same way each time I'm at the podium because it's what I am. I am my father's daughter. I look like him and I act like him and I talk like him and I think like him. Sometimes I swear like him and I tried to drink like him, And but for God's grace I would have died just like him. I know today that I was rigging myself for this disease from the time I could walk, because I walked around acting just like my daddy. Uh, by my judgment today, uh, he was a full-blown alcoholic. So I was walking around acting like one of y'all. <laughs> y'all are not going to divert me from my primary purpose. So... <laughs> I'm going to carry this damn message no matter what. <laughs> My dad was uh, he was a very hard and harsh and direct man. And I learned to be hard and harsh and direct. And I was grown before I found out that he was a marshmallow inside. And I'd overshot the mark completely and I was hard to the core. I saw him steamroll people and I learned to steamroll. I saw him intimidate my mother and I had her intimidated for I was ten years old. Uh this is not always attractive behavior in a child. I also, um, I had bright red hair, and you know, redheads have a temper, and I'd show mine to anybody that wanted to see it as often as they wanted to see it. And sometimes when I say that, I lose some of the ladies in the audience, and I'm not particularly interested in what I'm saying anyway. And uh, I'll tell you, no, I don't color my hair. Red and gray makes this color. And, um,
1: <laughs>
0: if you really thought about it, would I have picked beige if I was going to pick a color? I don't think so. I don't think so. Anyway, I was just uh, a troublesome child, and uh, I learned a lot about self-will run right early on, early on. And that gives you some idea of the the personality of the Martha that you had to deal with when I got here. I was raised in Greenville, Texas, which is northeast of Dallas, and... um, what you did in Greenville for entertainment after you reached a certain age is you slipped off and you went to Dallas and drank. And I'd gotten to slipping, up, slipping off age, so my daddy sat me at the kitchen table and started pouring straight shots down me. And it was the only time I ever got physically ill from drinking. Uh, and so when it was time for me to slip off and go to Dallas, I did. Uh, I gladly went, but I just didn't drink when I got there. Now, my mother and daddy divorced uh, right before my junior year in high school, and mother and I moved to uh, Dallas. I was the youngest of three daughters, but uh, my two older sisters had already moved away from home, and mother and I moved to Dallas. And I know today that the hostility I have felt for that lady most of my adult life was because she took me away from my daddy. And I spent every weekend jumping on the train and going up to Greenville to spend it with my daddy. And uh, for an awful long time I I, uh, I thought I did all this because I love my daddy and I did love him. But in sobriety I have found out that the motivating emotion in back of all that was fear of his rejection and there was no basis for it. Absolutely no basis for that. Just something I dreamed up. Uh, but i uh, the only real serious argument my daddy and I ever had was whether or not I was going to go to college. He said I was and I said I wasn't. And I had taken a lot of business courses in high school, and I wanted to hurry up and get out there and get a job and show my daddy what I could do. Well, I won that argument, and I graduated from high school when I was 16, and before my 17th birthday, I had an excellent job with one of the largest companies in the Southwest. And that was to be the story of my working career right up until I retired five years ago. I always had excellent jobs and always made tubs of money. But what was important about the good jobs and making all this money was that I could tell my daddy about it. Always I could tell daddy. So that's just sort of the way I lived my life. And I didn't know for a long time in sobriety that the only reason I married my second husband was because my daddy liked him. I didn't like him with a damn, but da- <laughs> but daddy did. And I submit that's rather sick behavior. Um, but at any rate, uh, that—that's really the Martha that—that that, uh, that I was when I came to you people. And I'll tell you a little bit about the way I drank. Uh, I'd like to tell you about the style and grace with which I drank. Uh, but what I'll tell you is how I did. Um, I married in my uh, late teens, and. Uh, this crowd we ran with I thought was pretty sophisticated, and uh, they drank all these fancy drinks, and I tried to. But I never could get the water and the seven-up just right with one little shot of bourbon. And if that's the way you're going to drink, you're never going to make this program. <laughs> uh, in that marriage, we uh, finally moved to Houston, and uh, in my late 20s, uh, that marriage ended, and we were in Houston by that time. And I had found my magic elixir by then, and I hit the floor running. And I doubled up, and I caught up, and I became a daily drinker. At that time in uh, in Texas, we did not have liquor by the drink, but we had a lot of clubs in Houston, and I was a member of all of them. And uh, I started my daily drinking right then, right then. Now I know that a lot of y'all got here in real bad health you would uh, blown your livers and shot your stomachs. And I got here healthy as a horse, Um, but my feet were gone, Uh, because everything I did drinking I did to my feet. All my toes have been broken two or three times, all of them. And um, I never went anywhere on vacation that I didn't do something to my feet the night before I left or on the way or as soon as I got there. In all my photograph albums, I've either got one or two ace bandages on my feet. Or I'm on crutches, or I'm leaning on a cane, or I'm sitting in a wheelchair. And then I'm not doing any of those things, and you know that's when I sobered up. And for a long time, I could say that I had not broken anything since I'd been sober. But a couple, three years ago, I was sitting in my living room, and I just got up to walk across the room to my desk, and I might mention there was nothing between me and that desk. But. Some way or another, I got tangled up in a chair on the way over there, and uh, I popped a toe. <laughs> and I sat down and I literally, just like the comic strips, I saw stars just going around my head. And then I started laughing because that's the first time you had hurt that damn bad.
1: <laughs>
0: I had no idea. <laughs> Every now and then, I I would hurt something besides my feet. Not often. I just walked out my front door one day in a rather strange fashion. And I didn't even fall and broke every bone in my right foot at one time. But I took a Christmas party home with me one time, and uh, (laughs) we were all dancing in my living room, and I'm the only one that got tangled up in the telephone cord. (laughs) The only one. And I fell over backwards, and as I went down, my ear caught on a television set. And I ripped my urinary all the way off. But it was a good party, so I just held that sucker up there. (laughs) And I went to the emergency room after everybody left. And I never, it seems to me I never got in anybody's car. They didn't have a wreck, and I was the only one ever hurt. Nobody else ever got hurt. And this dent in my head up here is not a dimple in a funny place. I, uh, I got that when I got a whiplash in my living room, and there's not a whole lot of details I know about some of these things, I'm telling you because I wasn't always present when they happened. But I do know that if you're falling hard enough and fast enough, when your head hits a coffee table, you can snap that neck right in your living room. And you don't have to mess up your car or nothing. <laughs> all I learned about that is that coffee tables are dangerous and I haven't had one in my house since. (laughs) I still don't have one. I just never associated um, alcohol with any of these accidents. I just thought if I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all. And everybody I ran with drank like I did, and if anybody thought I had a problem with this personality, they sure as hell didn't mention it. They just kept that to themselves. So I, uh, I never looked at at the possibility that I had a problem with alcohol. I just sort of fell around a lot, and uh, when I came to you, I told you that I had had a problem for about six months, and. Uh, I have been busting feet over 30 years. But six months before I came to you, some really strange things started happening. I was celebrating my uh, naked birthday in June. And the next day, I didn't remember having celebrated it. I didn't remember anything about the evening. So I assumed that I had passed out. Until people told me some of the charming things I'd said and done. And um, I realized I'd been on my feet all night. But I didn't think that was strange because I didn't think about it at all. My denial system was in place from the get-go. I just went right on my merry way. But I I I really believe that uh, subconsciously it bothered me because uh, in about a week or ten days I checked myself into the diagnostic clinic there in Houston and they ran a whole series of tests. And I came out with a diagnosis that was emotional reaction depression. And I didn't know what any of that meant. I knew that the emotional part meant I was going to pay for it and the insurance company wasn't. <laughs> and uh, that's all I knew about that. And I came out taking Elville and Valium, and I took them with my scotch, um, because this doctor had not told me not to drink with his medication, and for a fairly good reason. I hadn't told him I drank. I was at a state convention in, Houston, in, uh, in San Antonio, I think it was. When I heard a a lady from Massachusetts uh, say something I could identify with, she said that when alcoholics are sick that they really ought to go to veterinarians because they're accustomed to guessing what's wrong with their patients. Well, I made a lot of doctors guess what's wrong with me, but I never gave them the first clue that I drank a lot. But, But I know today that I'm not only sober by God's grace, I am alive by God's grace. Because that same combination Has killed an awful lot of us And the last six months I was out there doing my thing I was doing it with Ellaville And by him and Taking them with scotch My father had remarried And I have a half-brother I just consider him my brother Not my half-brother And he was in the Navy And he was stationed in England And my daddy said If you're ever going over there You ought to go while your brother's there So you know if that's what daddy said That's what I did So I broke two toes The night before I left <laughs> Got that out of the way You know, when I went on these trips I never had to worry about what shoes to pack I was always in house slippers And I've been all over the world in house slippers But I'll tell you one thing about this Stomachs and livers come back But when feet are gone, they're gone I've been sober almost 22 years And they've cut into my feet 23 times in that time trying to straighten up the mess I made of my feet. So, you know, any day I'm in shoes is a good day. But anyway, I went to uh, England to see my brother, and and I spent ten days with him, and I didn't get in any trouble. I went touring all day while he'd be at work, and we drank on a daily basis, but I didn't get in any trouble over there. And it was time for me to go home, and he took me to the airport, and he went on to the office. And then I did what some of us have to do from time to time, I made some decisions. And instead of going home, I went to Amsterdam, and uh, it just seemed like the thing to do that day. And I spent two or three days in Amsterdam, and I thought, well, what the heck. And I went on into Paris, and um, my family thought I was with my brother in England, and he thought I'd gone home. And I was just doing my thing over there. I got into Paris on Friday night, and I booked a lot of tours. Listen, I hang in there, bad feet or not I, I, am, a, I am a good tourist And uh, the next morning I got up bright and early And I started on my I went on a tour And that tour ended right at a sidewalk cafe Now, Elleville made me real thirsty And they didn't have water fountains over there And uh, so I had somebody at the hotel I didn't speak French I had somebody at the hotel write down ice water On a piece of paper for me And when I got off of that tour bus I went into the sidewalk cafe And I ordered a little glass of wine And a glass of ice water and then I thought I'd just walk Paris in my house slippers. <laughs> and I started up the Champs-Élysées, and I had to stop at a lot of sidewalk cafes and get a little glass of wine a little glass of water. And I didn't get too far till my feet gave out. And I went back to the hotel, and I started writing some postcards, and I mixed a drink. And the next time I saw me, it was uh, Sunday morning. And I didn't remember Saturday night in Paris. And I didn't think that was strange, because I didn't think about it at all. I just went on the next tour. Nor was I didn't know what happened or what I did on Saturday night in Paris until I got my pictures developed. Hmm. <laughs> 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 oh. And apparently I had a fine time. Uh... <laughs> well, I'd only been uh, home about three weeks from that trip and I finally did go home. Um, and I'd only been home about three weeks When my dad died And uh, You know It was a really hard time for me But I'm the only one that knows that I knew that Because uh, Steamrollers don't cry and They don't tell anybody they're hurting My mother and daddy had remarried by that time And um, I stomped around up there In uh, Greenville You know Running things And uh, Taking charge And bullying everybody And one night Um I guess it was the night before the funeral. I don't ever like remembering this and I like telling you all about it even less. The minister of that little Baptist church there in Greenville was in our home and finally he said to me, if you don't mind, I'd like for you to put your drink down. I'd like to pray with family. And all my arrogance, I said, you do what you got to do and I'll do what I got to do. And I kept right on drinking. And I really don't like remembering that. I'd only been back in Houston two or three weeks maybe and I got ready to go to the grocery store one Saturday morning and I went down to get in my car and it was not in my carport. So I looked all around the apartment parking lot and I uh I didn't see it and on up in the day I reported it to the police stolen. It may have been. Um <laughs> or I might have left it somewhere. <laughs> I could have loaned it to somebody. I could have given it away. Uh but anyway, three weeks later, the insurance company, oh, that reminds me of something that Paul from Illinois says about things like that. He said he's seen the um, the love of a, of a mother and, and son reuniting, or a father and a daughter, or a husband and wife. But he's never seen anything as touching as an alcoholic who's just found his car. <laughs> Well, I never did find mine. But the insurance company settled with me, and three weeks later I got a new car. And I would made such a good deal on that car that I got drunk with the salesman in the showroom. And they don't give a diddly if you just bought a new car or not. Uh, If you're drunk in showrooms, they will put put you out. It never did occur to me if that salesman had something to celebrate I hadn't made too good a deal, but anyway. um, The following Monday was New Year's Eve And it was also the coldest day we'd had in Houston that year And I decided that I would stay home I generally did on New Year's Eve I always said that I didn't drink with the amateurs I just drank with the pros I had no idea how much truth there was in that When I was saying it But I worked all day You know, I never missed a day's work from drinking Ever Well, I never missed turning up I didn't always work when I got there But I never I I, I always got to work so when I got off that day I uh, I went home and I mixed a drink and I put on a long robe and some fuzzy house slippers and I had a, a potato bacon and a steak marinating and the next time I saw me I was in a long black dress slit up to the knee on both sides and I didn't have my glasses on, I'm blind without my glasses and I couldn't breathe through my nose and I couldn't bend my knees and I was in jail And I didn't know how any of these things happened At least of all how I ended up in jail It was the worst night of my entire life I have never known such shame and degradation in my life as I knew that night But I want to assure everybody in this room That I had done much more shameful and degrading things than going to jail But I had done them by choice And this had not been my choice Now, I know that there'll be some of you sitting here in the audience thinking, is she going to tell us one night in jail, did it? Well, let me remind you, this ain't your story. And in this story, it's a big deal. Mm. There's a prayer that we have in my church, and the last line of that prayer is, wherever I am, God is. And I must have said that a gazillion times that night, that's the only way I maintained my sanity during that night, was saying wherever I am God is, wherever I am God is. About midnight they let me make a telephone call and I tried to call a nephew that's a lawyer and I couldn't reach him so I called another nephew that I'd gotten out of jail several times and I thought turnabout was fair play. And he came down and made bail for me but the accident division had a hold on me and they kept me to fire the next morning and then he took me home. And then I finally reached the nephew that was a lawyer, and I asked him if he could find out why I had been in jail. I think it's strange they don't tell you. <laughs> I assumed I'd been in a car wreck because I had all these old familiar aches and pains, but I didn't know. And he said, no, he couldn't find out that day, but he would the next day, and he would let me know. And I didn't drink that day. And I don't really want to sound like Pollyanna, but I've never had a bad day in sobriety. Oh, I've had a lot of them that didn't go the way I wanted them to. A whole lot of them. A whole lot more that I didn't like. But every time I think I'm having a bad day, I put it up beside that first day I didn't drink, and they all look pretty good. They all look pretty good. Everything is relative. Well, the next day, my nephew, the lawyer, called me to tell me that um, just a few blocks from my house in my brand-new car, I had rear-ended another brand-new car, and I'd been in jail by 8 o'clock on New Year's Eve. And when I found out I had not physically harmed anybody, and I don't know why that was important to find out, but for some reason at that time it was, I called our group office, and I have absolutely no idea how I knew to do that. Except I know today that it was God's grace. And my God was with me that day, too, because he sent exactly the right two women to bring me the message of our program. If he had sent some of you, I couldn't have heard you. And if he had sent others, I would have rolled right over you. But he sent exactly the right two women to bring me the message of our program. They explained this to me and they told me that alcoholism was a disease and I didn't know that. They explained all these missing gaps in my life, told me about blackouts. They told me this thing was like an elevator and I could get off on any floor. And I told them about the steel mesh elevator in jail. And they told me I never had to go to jail again. And they got my attention right then. Now they tell me that I was the easiest trust up call they ever made. We decided between the three of us, since my knees didn't bend, that we couldn't get me downstairs, so they did. They would come back two days later and take me to a meeting on Friday night, and I called them every couple of hours for two days, reminding them not to forget me on Friday night. And by Friday afternoon, I'd step it up to about every thirty minutes. And I did every. You know, I misunderstood everything. I. Heard when I got here, and I cannot tell you how grateful I am that I did. Because if I'd understood any of it, I'd have gotten drunk. But I thought I thought our fellowship was a lot like a leper colony, that uh, once you came in, you couldn't leave. <laughs> and to stay, you couldn't drink. So no matter how badly I wanted to drink, I couldn't, because I was an alcoholic synonymous. And when you're that sick and that stupid, when you get here, it just simplifies the hell out of your program. you just... <laughs> You just can't drink. They told me that my best thinking had gotten me right to the point I was at that, that day. And they'd think for me. And I thought I had to let them. They told me that I was going to go to 90 meetings in 90 days and I didn't know I could save your life. I, I'm not doing that. I turned up exactly where they told me to turn up. Now I didn't do it quietly. I did it kicking and screaming, but all they they had a good buzzword. All they had to say was jail and I'd shape right up. Just <laughs> <laughs> they just rubbed jail in the conversation somewhere and I was on the road to wherever they told me to go. But those ladies left some literature there for me to read and I cannot begin to tell you how grateful I was when I read our twelve steps, just twelve positive things to do. Because um, don't to this alcoholic had always meant do it or die. I had set unattainable goals all of my life, and I'd attained every one of them. So I was very grateful that there weren't a bunch of don'ts in our steps. I will admit they looked a little easier in first reading than they've been. <laughs> but I knew for a certainty when I read them that I had done the first step my night in jail, that I had truly for the first time ever looked at all the accidents in my life, all of the broken relationships, all the sickness in my life, and I could tie them all straight to alcohol. And then I not only I not only admitted that alcohol was a problem, I accepted it. And you know, when you're home one minute uh, in a long robe, and the next minute you're in a long black dress in jail, you don't have any trouble dealing with unmanageability. You know it's there. So I knew, I knew that I had taken the first step my night in jail. When I'm in uh, meetings and people talk about the second step and they talk about the silly things they did when they were drinking and the hats and horns stuff, Shakes me a little bit, because that's not the insanity that I think about. I think about daring to drink when I was in Paris, where nobody knew where I was, and I didn't speak the language, and I had all these days missing from my life, and daring to drink again. And I knew what insanity was about. I knew that. I paid very little attention to that third step when I got to it, because I got here knowing a loving God... And he'd saved my life and all these accidents I'd been in. So I thought, you know, I didn't have to do much work there. And I didn't. I just sort of uh went over it. I had to I had to get to the eleventh step and establish a, a conscious contact with my God before I could turn my will over him on a daily basis. I couldn't seem to do it too well to something I wasn't in conscious contact with. Even though I'd always been an active church member and I went to church drunk or sober, uh and was active in my church there was no spirituality there. And I did not deal with God on a, on a daily basis. So I had to get to the eleventh step to get back finally to the third step. But anytime time I'm having a perfectly glorious day, I know whose will is working in my life. And whenever things is turning uh-huh, I know who's running it. It's always me. But I had to ask these ladies when I should do a fourth step, because some things were coming up that were really bothering me that I had never talked to my God about. And um, they were making it kind of touch-and-go and and hard for me to stay sober. And they told me that I would know when it was time. And that really aggravated me. They knew I followed directions. Why didn't they just tell me when to do it? But almost everything y'all did aggravated me. But I went to my minister because he was very knowledgeable in our program. And I explained to him that I heard people talking in meetings, talking about doing a fourth step and somebody got drunk doing it. And I said, I cannot afford to do that and get drunk and go to jail. And he said, Martha, the steps get you sober, not drunk. And he said, you have to do the fourth and fifth steps because they're the cleansing steps of the program. He said, but you can turn it into the most positive thing you've ever done. As you write each thing in that inventory, say, thank God I don't have to do that again. Thank God I don't have to feel that way again or say that again. Whatever you write, turn it into a positive affirmation. And I did that. He told me about the fifth step. He said, you know, you have justified your behavior to me ever since I've known you, because I used to call him drunk in the middle of the night. And he said, this is the one time you can say everything you've ever done or thought or felt, and you don't have to justify a word of it. You just have to do it. So at just about five months sober, I took a very, very superficial fourth and fifth step. But the important thing was it was good enough to keep me sober until I could do a thorough fourth and fifth step. And then I realized that these folks were getting drunk while they were writing a great American novel. It's been my experience each time I've done a fifth step. It's a very short time after that that my awareness gets wider and deeper, and other things start coming to the surface and another fourth step has to be written. There have not been many years that I've been sober that I haven't done a fourth step and a fifth step. That's just been my experience. It's been. Because I have a loving God, he has not allowed me to find out everything negative about Martha that I've had to find out at one time. It would have knocked me to my knees. He's let me learn just what I could handle at any given time. Well, when I was in meetings with y'all on the sixth and seventh step, I hadn't got a clue what you said. But what I heard was that God had removed all your defects of character. Well, he hadn't done zip with mine. And... um I know every time, for a while, every time I felt a new emotion, I started praying it away. And I'm so glad God knows which prayers are goofy and which ones to just ignore. Um, and I, I really don't know what I was expecting. Um I wasn't expecting Bill's experience of the the bright light and all that sort of stuff. But since I've been sober, I've pretty much figured out what I really did expect. I think I expected to go to bed one night just mean as hell and wake up precious And and, it didn't happen (laughs) It didn't (laughs) Hadn't happened (laughs) yet But there's always hope (laughs) This may be heresy at an AA meeting I don't know I expect to die with every character defect I got here with But I think depending on my spiritual condition And how much I'm willing to allow God's will to work in my life They'll all be tempered when I, can, when I can express my anger in an acceptable way, instead of using it as a blow as I did all of my life, that is God removing my defects of character. And if I'm tolerant today of something I was intolerant of yesterday, that is God removing my defects of character. And if I can be a loving friend to you today instead of a steamroller, that is God removing my defects of character. So it's been a very subtle thing in my life the sixth and seventh step I started making a list uh, of people I had harmed when I uh, first week I got here the Lord time I got that step it looked like Houston Yellow Pages and uh, these ladies told me that I wasn't that important that probably I'd aggravated the hell out of that many people but I hadn't harmed that many and uh, that I could just get it down to a reasonable list and and so my list was just um, family and business associates, because steamrollers don't get here with any friends. But I had some serious business amends to make, real serious ones, because um, I was into making money, and ethics never had been my long suit. And uh, so I had some serious amends to make. I made amends to my mother, uh, and I didn't feel any better for having done it. And everybody kept telling me, but the important thing is you did it. Well, that is not the important thing. These steps are supposed to get us back into healthy living. And if you're still hurting over something, you haven't done something right, in my opinion. Anyway, I decided to go home one Mother's Day. And I know, too, today that God got me willing just in time. And it was by God's grace that I chose to go home that Mother's Day. And I literally, uh, really cleared away the wreckage of the past with that lady over that Mother's Day weekend. Really cleared away the wreckage of the past, and I felt real good about it. And I don't even have the words to tell you how grateful I am that God got me willing in time, because as you know, Mother's Day is the second Sunday in May, and um, the following September she had a massive stroke that left her a vegetable for the next three and a half years, and I faced that with no guilt. Because God had gotten me willing just in time. That was probably the hardest three and a half years of my sobriety for me. I had to learn more things during that time uh, than I've had to learn. Well, not more things, but they were harder to learn. I learned more about acceptance than I ever wanted to know. I didn't know why she was having to go through this. She'd lived a real vanilla life, and she had not done anything to, in my opinion, to deserve all this. We had just amputated a leg, and we were about to have to amputate an arm. And I finally learned that all I had to don't know was that God's will works in her life just like it does mine. I don't have to understand it or agree with it or anything else. I just have to accept it. And I learned more about living a day at a time during that three and a half years than I ever wanted to know anything about, it too. Up until then, I knew how to get through anything bad 24 hours at a time, but I didn't really know how to live a day at a time. And I had to learn that during that three and a half years. That I had to live a day at a time. I don't know what, if anything, my two sisters learned during that three and a half years. I know that the one that lived the closest to mother, uh, she had some days of sobriety she wouldn't have had any other way except that she was checking on mother at the nursing home two or three times a week. But I know what, I know what it meant to this daughter. It gave me time to learn to love my mother. And some wonderfully warm memories came back to me that I had no idea were buried. Uh times when I was a little girl and sitting me down and teaching me to embroider and do things like that, trying to turn this tomboy into a young lady. And just some wonderfully warm memories of that lady. So it was a it was a hard time for me, but it was a learning time. Not everybody has as clear a before and after picture as I do. I have a picture of a drunken, arrogant, woman stomping around in North Texas at her her father's funeral, and just ten years later sobering with a measure of dignity at my mother's funeral. And y'all gave me that. I'm very grateful for it. I had no idea what I was going to do with the tenth step. You know, if you've never been wrong, it's hard to talk to the fifth, tenth step. And a fellow said something in my home group one time that I realized was the story of my life when he said he'd lived his whole life with the attitude of, I'd rather be right than happy. And that's how I'd live my life. And here I was faced with a step that talked about wrongs. And these ladies told me that what I could do was just, I could just start saying I'm sorry for a few things. Well, I wasn't sorry for nothing. But I went around saying I'm sorry for everything. And after I got the hang of that, they told me, they said, that's not what the step says anyway. It says, promptly admit it when you're wrong. And there again, there's an easier, softer way. Because when I tell somebody I'm sorry, I feel duty-bound to tell them this long rigmarole about why I did whatever it was I did. If I say I'm wrong, that's all I have to say. Sure simplifies my life. The tenth step is the one I'm sure I do on a daily basis. I'm very careful to do that because in the beginning, that's the only way, doing a daily inventory was the only way I could see any growth at all in me, and some nights I even looking back over my day in the early days could see a few things I had done right. And that was startling. So even to this day I am very careful to do an inventory on a daily basis. Uh, as I mentioned about the third step, I just didn't think I would have any trouble with the third and the eleventh step uh, because of the feeling and the relationship I had with my God. And I found a, a period of time in, in sobriety when I would ask for guidance on a particular problem. and maybe. Maybe one-on-one somebody would give me the answer, or maybe hearing somebody share at a meeting or somebody at a podium, and nothing would change. And finally my sponsor uh, brought it to my attention that it was entirely possible that I was overlooking a part of that step, the power to carry it out. She said, you know, Martha, you can pray for guidance till you turn blue. Until you get off your backside and take action, nothing's going to change. So I'm very careful today. I asked for the power to carry it out after I asked for God's will in my life on a daily basis. I was very anxious to get to the 12th step because I heard everybody say you had to give it away to keep it. And I sure wanted to keep it because I didn't want to get drunk and go to jail again. And I did what we have new people doing, you know, making coffee and setting up chairs and washing cups and all that kind of stuff. And none of that made me feel very spiritual, I can tell you that. And I went on some 12-step calls with some ladies that had some sobriety. And I found out early on that that was not going to be the way I was going to be able to carry the message Because the only message I have is my experience And my experience when I got here was I wanted to quit drinking because I didn't want to go to jail again And so when I'd carry that message that I wanted to quit drinking and they should quit drinking And they kept drinking, I wanted to just knock the hell out of them And uh, so early on I found out that wasn't going to be the way I was going to do it But about this same time, my group got to acting bad and uh, I had a whole year's sobriety, and uh, I did not like the way things were going, so we've got enough groups in Houston that you don't have to fool with a group that's not acting right and um uh, But there was a man that came to that group that had a lot of sobriety, and he said, "Martha, why don't you look at that that says "Courage to change the things you can so my group was started by one man, and uh he had somebody chair every month and somebody lead every week and somebody make the coffee. And and uh, we never were never sure what he did with the money, and I don't mean to imply he did anything wrong with it. We just didn't know what he did with it. And we didn't celebrate birthdays at that group. There was another group he owned, and we had to go to that group and celebrate birthdays. <laughs> so a year sober, and I knew none of that was right. And I had a co-hell raiser. And we called a group conscience meeting. And I can't tell you how glad I am God came. Uh, (laughs) Because we didn't have a clue what a group conscience was supposed to do. Not the first clue did we have. But we decided we voted to operate that group under the traditions. And to elect their officers and to have birthday meetings and to have it open on birthdays so the families could celebrate uh, sobriety. And I learned a very valuable lesson. That when you go in raising hell, get ready to work. Because my co-hell raiser was elected that group's uh, first secretary. And I was elected their first general service representative. And that's my miracle. Don't ever miss a group conscience meeting or a business meeting at your home group, you may miss your miracle. It changed the course of my entire life. I followed a path I would never have found except for that one group conscience meeting. I was still following directions, and at that time in the southeast Texas area our assembly met once a month, and they told me to go, second Sunday of the month, 2 o'clock, and that's what I did. For eight years I didn't miss the five meetings. I mean, you know, I and I started meeting people that our lives wouldn't have touched any other way, except they were serving their group the second Sunday of each month at two o'clock. Some of the dearest friends I have in the world today are people that I've met in service. And I started hearing things that really started changing my life. And I don't know, at home it seems to me like the service people go to conferences and conventions around us a little more, and it may be because we're on more mailing lists than anybody else. But they told me I needed to start going to these things, and I still found directions, so I started going. And my life took off like a comet, just like a comet. I was at another convention in San Antonio, and I heard, again, Paul M. talk about it's alcoholism, not alcoholism. And what have you done to treat your disease today? And he said, anytime you're having a bad day, you're suffering from untreated alcoholism. And I needed to hear that. And at another state convention, I heard a lady talk about serenity that, That's one word I had not used in the same sentence with my name And uh, um, she said that serenity was not the absence of conflict in your life It was the ability to cope with conflict in your life Sometimes I can do that And then I was at another state convention And I think I'm quoting our Saturday night speaker when I say this I told him that at dinner tonight He gave me a definition of humility that I could live with when he said humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. And sometimes I can do that. I had to go all the way to Colorado to hear a lady say something that if you decide to think about this, it can turn your life around instantly. When she said, as it relates to things in Alcoholics Anonymous, she said, I look for reasons to say yes instead of excuses to say no. And that right, will turn you around in a minute, in a minute. And I had to go all over to New York to hear a man say, You can't fall off of a building from the middle of the roof. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, I know, I know. And you can't fall out of a A if you're in the middle of it, but you sure as hell can if you stay on the edges. And that's been important for me to know that. And I had to go to Fort Worth to hear a lovely Al-Anon Talk about the slogans, I just hated them And uh, she said they're the railings to the steps when you can't get your foot on a stair pole under the railings and I had to go a long way to hear that I know somebody was saying these things at home Bound to be But I know today why I had to drive all those miles To hear these things Because when I hear a stranger talk at the podium I can cut out all personality and I can hear principles And I can't always do that at home I've been known to take people's inventory as they speak. (laughs) So conventions have been really important to me because uh, I've learned some of the hardest lessons and yet I've learned some of the easiest tools to make my life better by hearing a stranger at the podium. Well, because I was going to these uh, monthly meetings, there was a group of ladies that asked me on a regular basis. If I would like to get fingerprinted and go into the women's state prison at Huntsville, and I said, hell no. I was real clear about that. But they just kept asking me and kept asking me. So finally it occurred to me that if I really am going to allow God's will to work in my life, that maybe that's what he wanted me to do. And so I got fingerprinted again and uh, went into the women's prison at Huntsville, which is about 70 miles from Houston. And the first day that I went up there, I was just scared spitless. Now, I wasn't afraid of the ladies in white. I, I could just see them laughing me out of the hall when they heard about my one night in jail. Now, they're doing hard times. And, of course, that didn't happen. They welcomed me with open arms and with a great deal of love. And the first lady that I talked to at a cigarette break, she told me my story. There was just one difference in our stories. She had been on the blackout and uh, she was driving the rear end of the car. And she didn't know where she was going either. And then came the difference in our stories. The man she hit died and the lady I hit lived. And she was doing 30 months. So my first time in the prison I found out exactly who was doing my time for me. And she had a name and she had a face. I learned about gratitude at a level that nothing else would have taught me. I continued to go into Glory, which was the women's prison at that time, two Sundays a month for the next eight years. And when those steel gates slammed in back of me those Sundays and I got to come home, I knew knew a lot about gratitude. And when I would hear the girls talk about doing a fourth step and having to leave it around where it could be found and used against them, it made my fourth step so much easier to write. And when they talked about how difficult it was to make amends in the visitor's room, It made making my men so much easier. The first lady that paroled out to Houston that I worked with, she and I went to meetings together every day and we'd have either lunch or dinner together. And she'd been very active in our program. She'd been up there that time three and a half years. And she was only out three and a half weeks and she died drunk. And it just nearly killed me. But God was with me that day too because I went to a meeting that I had never been to before and I haven't been to since. But that night they were showing Father Martin's film, Guidelines. And in that film he says, no alcoholic ever dies drunk in vain. They buy sobriety for somebody. And Carla bought me mine. She died right in front of me. She showed me as clearly as we can show one another that this is a progressive disease. And she died right in front of me and showed me that. So these are just a couple of the reasons why I've, uh, it was so important to me to be involved in prison AA, I, I don't know that, that my going to go you know, all those years or my involvement in service all those years amounted to a hell of beans as it related to the prison or to the service structure. But it did a wonderful thing in my life. I'm the one that benefited. I don't think prison did, and I don't think service did. But my lord, I did. I always give this commercial just in case there's somebody in the room that hadn't figured out how they can 12-step yet. Going into prison is one of the best ways I know. They started talking about moving the women from uh, the Houston area to north-central Texas. And it was going to be a place that would just be a little difficult for me to get there and back on Sunday and also get to work on Monday morning. And I was gripping and uh, harping about that to my sponsor. And she said, Martha, did it ever occur to you that if they do move the ladies, maybe God has something else for you to do? Well, of course that didn't occur to me. I never thought about God's will first. That was always a fallback position. Um, but sure enough, they moved the ladies, and that fall, oh, I, had to, oh, I was uh, given the privilege to represent, I was elected to represent my area at the General Service Conference. And then I had two of the most rewarding and remarkable years of my entire life. All that work in AA, as most of you probably know, is done by committee, and our committee assignments are drawn by a lot, and you could have heard me yelling all the way to Nashville when I got my committee assignment because it was corrections. So I had two more years to serve in doing the work I love best. And then about four and a half years ago, about four years ago, I had an opportunity to send in my resume, and I was chosen serve as an appointed member to the Trustees Correctional Committee at GSO so I go up there four times a year still being able to work on corrections. I keep taking myself out and God keeps putting me back in. I was at uh, one of the men's units uh, close to Houston just a couple of weeks ago and generally I don't like talking at men's units. But the uh, the counselors and the guards just left me in the room with these forty nine men. And for the first time ever talking at a man's institution, I felt like they were listening. All the other times it's been at anniversaries and stuff where they're on their good behavior and guards are everywhere and they're afraid to even look up when a woman's on the unit. And it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. There again, I don't know that they got diddly out of it, uh, but I sure did. I sure did. You know, if I were to stand up and tell you all the wonderful things that have come into my life simply as a result of the line of 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to work in my life most days be here all night as I'm sure you would be but one of the greatest gifts I've been given other than my sobriety has been to learn about love I didn't know zip about love when I got here I knew a lot about falling into heat but I didn't know anything about love I'd gone through two marriages and innumerable affairs and all my family relationships and I did not know one thing about love nothing and I had a beautiful uh, teacher and my sponsor she took God, what God sent her and literally walk me into sobriety and love me into sobriety. Um, I don't know that we talk about sponsorship enough at uh, at the podium. I always talk about Annalie, my first sponsor in particular. She and I went to my uh, Thursday night home group meeting every week together. And we'd have dinner every Thursday night on the way. And every Thursday night she bought my dinner. And every Thursday night I had to say thank you. And it would be birthday at my group and it wouldn't be my birthday and she'd bring me a present and I'd have to say thank you. And it never drove me crazy. I made as much money as that old woman and I didn't need her doing all this stuff for me. And she was forever doing something for me that I had to say thank you for. And then I guess I learned what she was trying to teach me. That you can't give until you've learned to receive. And she knew this woman was never going to be able to receive emotionally or spiritually until I learned to receive materially. And she took the time to teach me. Now, when I got here, I wouldn't even hold hands with y'all when we prayed, much less hug. This hugging was just not my cup of tea. Till she got hold of me. And, uh, when I asked her to sponsor me, she wasn't in too good of health. And she told me that she didn't think she could. And famous last words I said to her, I'm not much trouble. And, uh, and called her every day of her life. Every day. Except when I couldn't, she was in intensive care for a long time. Once, that's the only time she got loose from me. But she was very, very special to me. And she taught me so many, so many things. And she just took time with me. Loving, loving time with me. It was only about, um, well, less, less than a, maybe two months after, uh, my mother had her stroke, that my sponsor died. And they were literally taking bets in Houston whether or not I was going to stay sober. Because this is the first woman that I had ever, that I had, the first person, even, that I had ever trusted, and that I'd ever loved, that I'd ever let get close enough to really love me. And she was gone. Um... I would not have let anybody but her catch hold of my face every time she saw me and kissed me right on the mouth. And every time I left her, right on the mouth. Hell, I could hug anybody after that. Uh, But that's what she did. Every time she saw me, she kissed me right on the mouth. Sponsor I've got today does the same thing. I don't know how I attract these women that are so hell bent on kissing on the mouth, but anyway. (laughs) <laughs> it was um, it was really a tough time for me when she died We had worked real hard at getting this hard veneer off of me And some of it was off, but a lot of it wasn't I, I was pretty selective about who I'd let help me It was generally just her And when she died, the pain was so horrendous I had to be willing to let anybody help me Just anybody that would So even in her death, she was helping me and she's touched every life in this, her sobriety has, every life in this room tonight because so many of the things I've said tonight are the things that she taught me. I got another sponsor, at least I thought I picked her out later. I finally, it occurred to me that Anna Lee, my first sponsor, had introduced us and started putting us together the last couple of years uh, that she was alive because she had uh, terminal cancer the last two years she was alive. And my current sponsor, when she identifies herself, she says, I'm Doris and I'm a happy alcoholic. And she's taught me the joy of sobriety. And Leah took me through all the hard stuff. And then Doris got me in time just to teach me to live joyously a day at a time. And I'm very grateful for both of them. I understand today that uh, I have a lot of choices. I didn't understand it when I got here. I thought I had to stay. But I do understand today that it's my choice whether or not I'm your friend or I'm a steamboat. And whether or not I'm going to even care about you. Or just go right past you. And I understand that, I, that it's my choice today whether or not I have a good day or a bad day. And it has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on outside of me. It's a choice I make inside whether or not I'm going to have a good day. I understand that today. I understand today that even though I'm an alcoholic synonymous, that if I want to, I can drink. And I don't have the words to tell you how grateful I am that I don't choose to drink today that I choose to be with all of you as we trudge the road of happy destiny. And thank you for having me here this weekend.
1: Thank you so much. When I grow up, I want to have a voice just like yours. (laughs) If I keep coming back, maybe I'll have a voice like yours. And I am so thrilled to give you this gift tonight. After hearing your story, I have to tell you that this was made by someone in the prison system here in Nashville. One (laughs) for you.